Hello, I'm Natasha and welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. Fittingly, we're sharing our last panel from the Global ESG Summit today, which is all about governance. Right when in the UK, we've just received our own governing news. Just a week or so ago, ESG investors told us they were worried about the Conservative Party hopefuls taking their foot off the gas, as it were, on the UK's net zero commitments. So now with the new announcement, there wasn't much indication from new Prime Minister Liz Truss's plans in this area in a speech yesterday, but we'll be keeping an eye on the tipped emergency budget in the next week or two to bring you all the latest developments in this area. But you can let us know your thoughts as well by emailing ESGeditors at bonhillplc.com about this or, of course, about anything else on your radar. But on to today's episode, where Natalie is joined by an esteemed panel to debate stakeholder consideration and investor frameworks for assessing governance. And after that, we have another clip with oceanographer Dr. Emma Boland to share with you. I think I said a couple of weeks ago that this was the last one, but in fact, there's one more coming up. Today, again, quite fittingly, we have a discussion with Emma on climate scepticism. And I say fitting because, of course, we've been seeing a lot of this backlash to ESG, particularly in the US. And you can see our stories on that on our US website. So please enjoy this clip from Emma. She has a very persuasive argument about how she can show undeniably the effects of climate change and some of the work she does. It's very interesting and something that I knew nothing about. So please do have a listen and enjoy the episode in general. Um, thank you all for joining me. Really good to have you all. And I'm um, looking forward to discussing better governance. Um, one of my favourite topics, actually, and I know that I've spoken to you all individually in the past about this. So it's great to have you all. Um, to start us all off and sort of set the scene for this panel, give us a flavour of what we're going to discuss. Like I'll come to each of you to introduce yourselves. I know you've been here before, Dan, but um, ask you to introduce yourselves and discuss what you think get good governance looks like. I'll start with you, Dan. Uh, okay, um, so for for me, it it's really a, uh, about businesses acting in the best interests of their of their shareholders, uh, which ultimately is in the best interest of their other stakeholders as well. I'm sure we'll get into mm-hmm. into that. But and uh, investment managers acting in the best interests of their of their clients, and and I mentioned that that is absolutely obvious. But I don't think it's about ticking boxes. I don't think it's about questionnaires. I think it's about the genuine behaviours, attitudes, and culture of the people that are leading the business. So it's it's how they're uh, allocating the business's capital, which is ultimately shareholders' capital. Uh, it's how they how they behave in in private as well as in, in, in public. So it's a um, I guess my my approach to governance is just very old fashioned. Thank you. And uh, Suresh, what does a good governance look like for you? And yeah, please introduce yourself. No problem. So Suresh Mystery, I'm Head of ESG and Impact Reporting at Alcati uh, Investment Management. I'll go into a little bit more detail. I think there are four aspects for us when we're looking at companies and, and putting, looking at putting them inside our portfolios. Because we're an ESG investor and governance is basically the foundation on which the ESG house is built. Because if you don't have that, the rest is, is risk and uh, you know, likely to fall over. So the first thing, and I used to be a banker, and one of the first things we used to do when we used to lend money to people is say, what's the character and capability of the person looking to borrow that money? 
And when we're looking at management teams, that's the first thing we look at. What's their character and what's their capability? Are they able to deliver what we, we expect them to deliver from a, a shareholder perspective, but from a strategy perspective? But are they also, do they also have the right character? And I can give you, you know, because we, we're going to trust them with our clients' money as well as, you know, our, our putting them into our portfolios. So it, you know, let's take an example. Um, we're an emerging markets investor. One of the big stocks in the emerging markets is Samsung. It's well known across the industry. We look at that business and it fails immediately from an ESG perspective for us because the, the chairman, the current de facto leader, is in prison uh, for embezzlement and, and bribery charges. His father was indicted on two counts of, of the same stuff. Uh, actually, got, to, got those got receded because he bribed the president at the time of Korea to, to, to let him off. Um, now, if that isn't enough to stop you from investing in that business, I, I really don't know what is. So first of all, look at the character and capability. Secondly, clearly these management teams need board support and board you know, independence guidance because um, as an investor, as a shareholder, I, I need to ensure that the, 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 the decisions are being made in the interests of the organization. It's not just about ticking a box and saying, yeah, we have you know, three quarters independent directors. It's the stature of those people. Are they capable of standing up to management? It's also their attendance. Do they actually show up at audit committees and remuneration committees? This is one thing having them. There's another thing they're actually doing anything within the business. So board, management, auditors, making sure they have you know, good quality auditors, people who will produce those reports, produce that information that we then rely on in terms of our investment decision making. And then finally, the, the ultimate part of governments really is, is the commitments they make and the policies they implement whether that be from an ESG perspective, whether it's equal opportunities, gender diversity, whistleblowing. There's one thing having those policies, but there's another thing them actually implementing them. So you can tick a box and say there's a whistleblowing policy, but then if you look at the amount of times the whistleblowing policy is actually being enacted and you see it's never been done, that makes you question the actual governance within that organization. So I'd say from our perspective, Absolutely what Dan says, but you then, as an investor, you have to look deeper. You have to have some standards and you have to have some criteria to go by. Fantastic. Thank you. Mandy? Hi, I'm Mandy Kirby. I'm Chief Strategist at City Hive. Um, I think I'm always reminded of, um, there used to be a Reuters news feed called Boring But Important. <laughs> and um, that, that's kind of what I think. It's, mm. it's about a, a way of giving predictability and reassurance and um, taking away the the big questions that you have to ask so that you can spend time on the more interesting elements of it. And also, I think lifting it up from just a company to more of an industry perspective, it's also about the trust in the industry and about giving that reassurance to the broader stakeholders that I know we'll come on to later on. <laughs> Sophie. Hi, everyone. Sophie Kennedy from EQ Investors. Um, I might disagree slightly to start with with Dan in terms of you know if you please shareholders the rest of the stakeholders will also follow I think that um, I, so Sophia I would disagree with that too okay. um, that, that's not what I said so I, I'm yeah. about to agree though okay. I imagine so I think um, you know focus on all stakeholders is really important when we're talking about what good governance means um, you would have heard me talk a lot about our B Corp status um, that the idea of moving from kind of shareholder primacy towards 
all stakeholders and and you know as Mandy said I think we'll come on from uh, com come on to that in terms of what we look for from a fund uh, perspective we invest uh, in funds not directly in, in stocks and companies so actually I think you covered off most of the things uh, that we would look for I guess from managing a business perspective and with my chief exec hat on when I'm sitting kind of in the boardroom what am I looking for um, diversity um, inclusive voices um, and strong leadership and I think if you can kind of drive all of those things and you've got the processes and policies in place um, to ensure that um, the, the structure is there that's the boring mm. bit the codes and the stewardship um, that um, that you can produce a business with good governance. Fantastic I'm going to stay with you um, Sophie so yeah we've discussed um, what does good governance look like to all of you we need to understand um, why it's important why is it important for companies to focus on all stakeholders like you said what does the good governance mean to different stakeholders and how does it improve business resilience? Okay, um, tackling the first question, the idea of why it's important. Um, obviously, shareholders are very important. We, we know that that's kind of where the capital is. Um, so I'm not disagreeing that we shouldn't be focusing on them. But, but I think there's been a move, certainly, if you think of the kind of existential crises that we're having at the moment, communities, ecosystems, climate change, it really come to the fore that if we don't, as a finance um, group, stand up and hold ourselves to account with regards to what's happening, I think Phoebe mentioned it in the session earlier, you know, there needs to be more capital allocation towards the UN SDGs than, mm. um, than the private markets can do. We need to help. Um, and the whole idea of um, shareholder primacy over the last years has been a focus on making shareholders as much money without thinking about the non-financial implications. And everyone is waking up to the fact that now we need to, to look towards the latter. So it's hugely important. With regards to um, your second point around, and I, and I don't want to kind of hog the stage, just quickly, I think for me, what, one of the most important things and one of the most important stakeholders for me is, um, is our clients. And so what What's important from a governance perspective there? What should I be thinking about? Uh, transparency reporting is really important at EQ. We're a sustainable house. Um, and without that reporting that goes with our investments, uh, we could say that we're doing anything. And with impact reporting, Suresh, I'm sure you agree, uh, you, you, with impact investing, sorry, it has to come reporting. So I would say um, the kind of transparency and reporting angle of governance is really important. Um, business resilience, um, I might answer that question slightly differently. Um, if you don't have good governance, what does that do to your business resilience? It opens you up to, um, you know, the serious risk of fines, uh, increased liabilities, um, reduced um, investment, reduced revenue. If you, some of your clients are going to go elsewhere and find other opportunities, um, and from a profit perspective, additional costs to kind of match those liabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, those three are kind of a recipe for disaster. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Rush, did you have anything to add yeah. to that as you're coming from an emerging markets perspective absolutely. as well? Um, firstly, I mean, shareholder primacy is the reason we're in the hole we're in right now in terms of climate change, inequality, loss of biodiversity. It's the abuse of the planet and its resources and its people that has led to the issues today for the pursuit of profit, let's face it. And that's been driven by the investment world who are pursuing returns um, and businesses have been pushed to do exactly that. Um, now, we're in a state where we have to change that and clearly share wider stakeholder uh, relevance and, and values are, are much more important and, and, and quite rightly so. 
Now, in this situation, business resilience is just heightened. It's not reduced, and, and I absolutely agree with you, Sophie. Actually, let's look at the positives here. Let's, I mean, I'll give you an example. Well-known, Unilever. We all know Unilever, hugely, hugely successful business in its own right, but from a sustainability perspective, leading that, that charge. They came under threat for a takeover from Kraft Heinz. And what happened at the time? It was the only time in Kraft, I think, Kraft Heinz's history that they failed in a takeover was because all the, the, the stakeholders with that support, Unilever supported its partners, its consumers, it, governments, etc., came out in support of the management and blocked the bid. Now, that's business resilience. That's a real opportunity for us to say this is where actually looking after your, all your share, uh, stakeholders is important. And I think, um, you know, for us in emerging markets, that's increasingly important because when we see rising inequality in the developed world, it's, it's accentuated several times in the emerging world. Mm. When we see climate change, we don't see the impacts. It's the sub-Saharan Africa, it's the global south that actually will see the impacts of the climate change we are, we are, we are delivering through, through the, 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 the businesses and the focus on shareholder primacy. So I think for, for us as emerging markets investors, it's not only a case of, of supporting business, building sustainability, and by sustainability I'm talking about stakeholder primacy rather than just shareholder primacy, into business models. It's no longer a case of giving a bit of money to charity or reducing your carbon emissions. It's about saying, look at my value chain and where can I put sustainability across the whole value chain? It impacts my clients, it impacts my people, it impacts the communities, it impacts the, the, the economy I'm working in. So for us, it's a critical part of how, how we do our work. Uh, and I'd just partly challenge what, okay. what we say on, on one of those things. We're not most of what you said, but you just started with saying that um, the pursuit of uh, profit was what got us into this, this mess. And I just colour that by saying that it's the pursuit of short-term profit that got us into this mess. Um, that actually, I, mean, I guess yeah. you'd probably agree that it's, it's a, um, as you talk about sustainability, what do we think of as sustainability? It's, yeah. it's long-term. Yeah. And actually, it's, it, it's Kraft Heinz, a perfect example, very short-term orientated business. Yeah. And whereas Unilever were taking a much longer-term perspective. And yeah. so it's, it, when we think about, about governance, it, it seems to me that that it, it should force us to think long-term as investors rather than being, um, as you say, shackled by the short-term, the quarterly numbers, whatever it is, and, and, and that's where we get ourselves into those problems. Yeah, 100% agree, 100%. I think that's the point, is this quarterly number, is this quarterly mm -hmm. review, we need to push that away. And I think Paul Pullman tried to do that Unilever. He said, look, I'm not going to do quarterly reviews. You'll kind of hear from me every couple of years or so because mm -hmm. that's how long it takes to mm -hmm. often deliver some of these you know, yeah. changes and deliver the returns that come on the back of them. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, Mandy, as someone who's had oversight of the industry, what, how has the conversation changed around governance? Have you noticed any new trends? Uh, sorry, I'm not omnipotent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I will take that. I've got oversight of the entire industry. That's, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think this is a really good example of how things have changed because, you know, that the Unilever moment, I think, was a bit of a, a hairy one because we didn't know that that it was going to turn out all right. And mm. I think it would have been really crushing if, mm. you know, if, that, if that had gone through. But it, it's a kind of a rare but hopefully emerging example of things starting to change and move in the right direction. And, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of objective element to it. So, you know, the universal owner aspect where 
your asset owners realise that you know they might be doing themselves a disservice if they um, you know didn't think more broadly about all of the areas they're invested in. Mm-hmm. You also got a much longer, I think, really history with companies who have been. Um, literally on the coalface of some of these issues and and have been maybe trying to give some of these issues back to investors and not had a lot of um, traction with them in the past. And even within companies, you know, those uh, multinationals that had operating environments that were at higher climate risk, for example, they've known about some of these issues for decades. And, um, you know, we're, we're playing a, a big game of catch up to a certain extent um, in, in, in some parts of our industry. But we are seeing the conversations really changing and a lot of Things that a couple of decades ago, you know, shareholder primacy being one, you know, we, nobody would have questioned it. And now actually everything is on the table for discussion. Mm. And I mean, I heard a lot today about collaboration and the need for people to work together. And I think there's this sense that no one has completely the set of answers um, and, and, and people need to move from... Um, the kind of emotional targets that we've had around things like net zero in 2050, which is not something that people can really hold in their hands at the moment. We heard that we need to have a bit more of a concrete target um, or set of targets to move towards. And we're starting to have better conversations now about what concrete examples of what investors can do. And right now we're in the phase of everybody collaborating because we don't know for sure. And I think you'll know that when you've got traction, when people start going, okay, we're not going to play with you anymore. We're going to go and do our own thing. That's really interesting. Um, So, um, Sophie, how do you break down governance when you're questioning companies or asset managers to invest in? Are there any specific governance standards they use or metrics? Um, Not specifically on the fund research side. I would probably, if if I'm thinking about kind of governance metrics, I would probably talk to our B Corporation status um, as a business uh, and and what that really means. It's a stamp of um, uh, kind of... Uh, verification that the our performance at social environmental levels um, is is of is of the highest quality that it needs to be. Mm. If I was an investor looking into uh, businesses like myself, it is exactly the kind of verification that I would be looking for. Um, it's a really stringent process. Um, and it's not a a kind of you get certified and that's it. It's an ongoing process. You have a recertification um, every three years. It's very in-depth. It covers every stakeholder. Um, and it really looks at what you're trying to achieve, the additionality, and it pushes you kind of year on year to improve what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's not, um, you know, it's not a law, it's not enforced, but it certainly um, adds that level of accountability that I mm-hmm. think that we all need in the finance mm-hmm. industry. Definitely, yeah. And, and Dan, is there any, are there any specific questions that you're asking um, in your conversations when you're questioning about around governance or any particular standards? Yeah, and, and I think there's there's a couple of things to say here. I mean, we're we're blessed with having an enormous number of analysts around mm. the world who are um, meeting with with fund managers and gauging their ESG commitment. Uh, and I, I think uh, you, we're we're looking for for fund managers that. Um, that when they they do um, have ESG products, for example, that they're taking it taking it really seriously and, and, and doing it properly as you as you'd expect from us. Uh, but then I think it's it's also a question of looking a bit beyond that as well, where um, you might look at the ESG commitment of a of an entire business, but then what about the um, the underlying uh, the underlying fund itself? 
Uh, and then, as was mentioned in, in, the, in the previous fireside chat, looking at the underlying holdings. Mm. You know, what, what is actually in the portfolio? And it, it seems to me that so much has been launched, uh, so much product has been launched over the last few years. We've got to be really careful, not just with what, um, what's said by the, the, the portfolio managers, but also what's then reflected in the, mm. in the portfolios. And, and, and so you need the, the, the data clearly to do that. So I think it's, it's the, that combination of, uh, of asking the right, the right questions, which cover an enormous uh, number of, of areas around ESG, but then verifying that uh, with the um, uh, with, with the underlying holdings and, and the data. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? And Amanda, I know that through your work at City Hive that um, fund selection teams are embedding governance into their research, and you've, you've, you've looked into that quite a bit, haven't you? Yeah, so we, we created a framework that we thought could help with that process of sharing information. Um, I come from a background of a lot around corporate and investor disclosure, and I know that no one really likes to do a lot of reporting, but um, having a framework for um, uh, an investment company to be able to disclose around what they're doing so they can demonstrate a clear line in terms of their outward commitments on investment and how they're living those values internally was really important to us. So we, we've tried to create something that will work not just for the people who are asking the questions but for the company as well so they mm. can um a bit a bit like the b corp you know be able to to see um the position they're in and also the ambition that they've got to be able to progress and that runs across all of their kind of aspects of culture i think can, if i can just broaden that out a little bit i think this is exactly what the industry has needed mm. for as talking as a kind of fund selector and managing a fund selection team having something that's kind of standardized across um, fund selectors is really important. I think if you look at ESG, one of the criticisms will be that nothing is standard. Um, everyone relies on, um, uh, or not everyone, but a lot of people rely on data. Mm. Uh, you touched on kind of the data side of things. Um, you have to really understand how that data has been put mm. together to use it properly. And mm. each data provider will um, have very different methodologies. So having some, um, some kind of standard approach that isn't data heavy that really brings out that qualitative side of things mm. is exactly what we need mm. we've been doing it at eq to a lot lesser extent only internally um to be able to really understand uh, when a fund selection or sorry when a fund manager says that they integrate um g into mm. their their risk um th their risk mitigation or their opportunities what what that really means so um yeah all for it yeah, I think just building building on that, um, as EM investors, we've been doing this for the last 10 years, and, and you make mistakes on that journey as, as you're going to learn about ESG investing. When we started, we knew it was a great idea, and we knew it's the way we wanted to do, go, but how do we actually implement it in practice? And over the years, you learn through that. You can't switch it on like a, a tap. You know, it, it doesn't work like that, and particularly in markets such which are kind of often opaque, such as emerging markets. You have to have standards, you have to have frameworks and structures. And what we've found over the years is by developing, for example, we have red flags right at the beginning of our process at our filtering stage, where we just say, you know, if it's a, a high energy use company and they don't produce greenhouse gas data, we just don't go any further. Mm. It's, it's that kind of base level that mm. you need to set because actually, if you ignore that at the base level, you then further further on far down do you, the line. Do you have a process for telling them that you're not going to do that? Absolutely, yeah. So you, part, you, you're part communicating. Of our, part of our communication. Mm -hmm. um, then when we're actually voting the other 
kind of other extreme of you know mm-hmm. one actually not investing to start with and then b when you're actually investing having some principles in your in your voting practice and working with people like iss to say actually look we want to target a 50 percent diversity on the board and if there's a hundred percent male board and they want to go for re-election we'll vote against them all mm. yeah. because it's not achieving our goals so having those standards and having a framework that your investment team and and the issues are often you know there's a lot of subjectivity here and when assessing a company and a sector and a country and and understanding the context but if you can give your team and work with your team to get those those base standards those those kind of values that are universal rather than country mm. or, or mm. economy centric then you can achieve that standardization you can achieve and communicate that to your clients and your investors so they're confident that actually what you're doing is is absolutely what it says on the tip mm. yeah some really interesting points there and i want to sort of uh, move on that discussion and we've talked a bit about the fund industry but we Let's 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 go go down that route. Uh, we run a campaign for better governance at, um, across all the titles at Bond Hill, and recently run a video series called Best Behaviour with the B Corp Investment Groups around better governance. And it's all asking investment firms to really look inwardly and question whether the values they have internally are what they're expecting of the companies of the, the, are there with what the companies they expect they're investing in. Um, so, how important is is that to you when you're all looking at portfolios or um, how you're measuring different companies? How important is um, the com- the culture of an asset management firm? And in an industry where we have faced some huge problems around corporate culture, maybe and some instilled behaviours as well. Um, Dan, I'll, I'll come to you first. Sorry, that's such a long-winded question. No, it's, it's a great Hopefully question. Um, just... So, I'd argue culture is everything. Mm. It's absolutely everything. Uh, it's it's how people behave when nobody's looking but it's a really tough thing to get under the surface of and and frankly one of the challenges of uh, having few opportunities to get together as an industry than we had pre-covid and even a, a decade ago is that you actually have fewer uh, um, offhand conversations with different people in the industry you, you, there's less opportunity to actually build up um, mm. that that idea of, of what the culture is really like inside the yeah. side of business and um, but 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 culture is is so important and it can't be seen just in a snapshot you have to see how a business evolves over over time and who are the people that are that they're bringing in who are the people that are leaving and culture is a static eye the culture changes um, over over time but I, I think it's the For me, it's the most important thing because what we are tasked with doing is looking after people's futures. Mm. Uh, And it takes actually a very special culture to put the needs of that end investor before their own as investment investment Mm. managers. And you you find it, and it's magnificent when you find it. Mm. Sometimes it doesn't stay, uh, but but it makes a huge difference to... Uh, to the outcome for that, that end investor. Mm. So it has to be, uh, I think, a, 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 such an important focus of, of any uh, of any fund research operation. Mm. And yeah, so the uh, same to you. Are you is it, how difficult it is to measure? Is it to measure corporate culture within asset management firms when you're sort of considering where to invest? Uh, very difficult, mm-hmm. and it's something that we spend a lot of time on. Uh, so whenever we're conducting kind of the fund. Uh, research or the fund due diligence, the asset manager is just as important to us. Um, we, we don't look at the fund in silos. Um, 
I guess potentially what I would add is something around the intentionality of that asset manager. I think in a lot of circumstances, we, you know, if you use ESG as an example, even traditional mainstream investors now integrate ESG. So trying to kind of distill the wheat from the chaff, I guess, one of the things that we will look at is really what is the intention of the asset manager what are they trying to achieve and it kind of comes out in their culture I think Um, the kind of things that we would look at that I could talk to are uh, their voting policies you've mentioned that I think that you know we've we've improved the reporting around that there's a lot of work being done with the likes of Tomello at the moment um, and to be able it, it's all about um, kind of transparency and reporting and if you can see the data you've got something to go on so uh, the voting policies uh, the stewardship um, policies that they have they are um, in, a, in, a, in essence the stewards of capital for our clients mm. we want to be proud that they're doing what we would do if we were the direct holders of those companies so what are their re- responsible investment policies um, and and a, a broader one that you can't really um, c- kind of get away from is what collaboration are they doing what initiatives are they working for because that really shows their intention mm. if they're doing it from a financial material perspective that's one thing but if they're collaborating with the industry on initiatives whether that's deforestation uh, healthy eating share action is a perfect example mm. um, of that then you can really get a feel of what their identity is um, and that's kind of a quality of assessment mm. that, that we spend a lot of time on and yeah, Mandine, you obviously mentioned with the ARC framework, you're um, trying to help investment firms measure an element of corporate culture with that. What what do they what do they find in the most challenging? Um, I think there you know there's a lot of disclosure requirements at the moment, so it, it's really about how do you distill something down into a meaningful disclosure and, and that can then be used and how an end user can then look at it and go, yes, this actually makes sense to me and I understand it in the, you know, the context it's been given. Those things I think we need to allow an iteration. We need to allow people to be able to make mistakes a little bit and try things out and see what works. And I think there's a lot of concern from many companies about being open about this stuff and then being challenged on it and going, why aren't you doing this well enough? You know, why haven't you got better? better data on this and so maybe we need a bit more of a focus on actually the process and some of the milestones that will get us towards the you know the targets where we see data changing so we you know we wanted to do a lot to help companies to be able to talk a bit more about some of the good things that they might be doing internally that they don't recognize is really important so you know it is more qualitative but it is things like you know we've got a process in place to improve on this and when you talk about things like initiatives it's really great to see those things, but we have moved, I think, in the last couple of years from seeing loads of initiatives being put on the table for people to sign up to and, you know, put their name on a website and whatever. But what we'd like to see now is there being some sort of evaluation of why this is important to us and how it got put on the table in the mm-hmm. first place and who gets to propose the initiatives that we support and why does that, you know, relate back to our values as a business and to get a bit more structure around it and we're not like there's almost nobody that has got a good track record on that at the moment but that's where we want to get people mm. to to actually sort of you know corralling it a little bit more mm. um Suresh so what what, do, what would you say needs to change for the asset management admin, asset management industry's culture or behavior to change what needs to happen where are there any solutions to this I mean I think what reflects the culture of the asset management industry is a, is a simple number the industry makes a 35 percent net profit margin 
which means the the pressure to change is just not there, really. You know, you look at the, the issues we've had with the ESG greenwashing, for example. It's because, um, and when we analyse it from our perspective, it's because, firstly, the exi there are existing mindsets within the industry that if, if you've never used ESG, you've been a fund manager for 20, 30 years, you've never used ESG, all of a sudden people are telling you to use ESG, and you're saying, well, I've been doing my job for so long, never needed it, what's the use of it? And so companies who are desperate to kind of join the ESG bandwagon are saying, actually, what we need to do is have an ESG team, and we'll have a separate ESG team to the fund manager, and the fund manager still kind of you know, takes the, the data and then ignores it and continues to do what they want. So as a consequence, you get this greenwashing issue of, of funds having a label that does not reflect actually what's mm. in the portfolio. And at the same time, the industry has, and this is where the initiatives are really kind of frustrating from our perspective, where you'd have an initiative to say, you know, the target is net zero, and you'll have lots of companies signing up, and you look at the percentage of assets committed to net zero, and it's 20%. Mm. So you're kind of going, okay, 20%, but, mm. you know, we've got to change. Climate, climate change is happening now. We've yeah, got 10 years to deal with this problem. It shouldn't be 20%. It should be 100%. Well, why is it 20%? Because that 80% exists and makes a lot of money. And so the actual commitment, where is the courage in the industry to actually turn around and say, that's that mandate. I'm not prepared morally. I'm not prepared to run that mandate any longer because it does not fit in with my values. Because if you're exposing ESG, diversity, or whatever the values are, but you're still investing in the old traditional funds or whatever it may be. Now, that takes courage. And mm. it means you have to think about long-term profitability, mm. not short-term profitability. And I think this is where the industry has a challenge right now, because if we were an industry making 1% or 2%, and the, the shift of ESG or the margin compression or whatever was actually going to take us into unprofitability, then I think we'd move a lot quicker. We'd make these decisions a lot sooner. Mm. And so for us at Alpity, when we set the business up, we kind of looked at this number and thought, what can we do? And I think it's about allocating our own capital to change the culture of the industry. Don't create new products, create new businesses. Change the business model. Think about, can I actually donate, you know, use my own capital to shape the society as I want it? And Dan and I were talking earlier about you know, the fact that social mobility is a real challenge for this industry mm. in the sense of most of us have come from good universities or good degrees or, uh, or good households. How can we actually put our money towards helping those who are in, mm. you know, in, in less fortunate environments mm. to actually access the industry, to change the thinking, mm. bring people from other industries in? So I think culture change requires some really quite courageous moves in yeah. the industry. I'd just add to that, though, just that point about people saying, well, I... I don't want to invest in these in these companies anymore, and and that's when it comes back to governance, isn't it? Because there's there's a real choice that we have of either disinvesting yeah. and potentially putting super normal short term but super normal returns in the hands of people who don't care, um, as opposed to actually exercising our governance muscles and engagement muscles yeah. and and continuing to own these businesses but being really good uh, stewards of our clients' capital and, and acting in governance there. So I think that's, uh, that's when the debate possibly gets a bit more nuanced with some of these. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Mandy, what, what Suresh was saying is, is, is quite a, would be quite a radical change for the industry to embrace. Do you think that that's somewhere we would ever get to? 
don't see why not. <laughs> I mean, so you, you mean you mentioned social mobility. It would be remiss of me not to say that I'm on the task force which is looking at social mobility, professional mm. services, including the investment industry, and they just launched a new membership body um, which will have a, a lot of resources and a lot of collaboration in terms of trying to address those those types of issues. And that's you know that's one point, but obviously that's um, the focus of that body has been on senior leadership and you want to get the pipeline coming in and, yeah. and, and you want to get the conditions right and also um, you're tackling things like well if you make it into senior leadership what you've you've kind of essentially changed your shape to fit the structure that's there it's not necessarily that you as your authentic self has been you know um, so there, there's lots of challenges there but I think that you know we, we talked earlier about how the norms really have shifted in, in a lot of ways and 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 so I don't see why we can't do the same thing here we went through a pandemic where we all had to work from home and you know that mm -hmm. that type of accessibility in the working example. environment were things that people um, you know marginalized people have been asking for for years mm -hmm. and they have been denied but somehow we found it in ourselves when it affected the right group of people um, and to be able to bring a massive change in, in the way that we worked so mm -hmm. we know we can do it we just need to work out what the levers are how do we make it difficult enough for the right group of people and I think that, you know, the, the start of it is always by asking the right questions, asking challenging questions and, you know, keeping on with those conversations. Mm. So is there anything you wanted to add to that one before you ask the final question for all the panellists? Not really. I guess from a positive perspective, I think there is a lot of good stuff happening. Mm. Um, it's probably not happened as quickly as it needed to um, or as broad brush as it needs to be. But I think... Um, with the education that's happening and there's a huge amount of education I think that you know as Mandy said there's no reason why we can't get to where mm. we want to get to yeah absolutely okay um the one final question which has been a bit of a theme for some of the panels today is what action point or take key takeaway would you um say to the audience to go away and maybe share with their business or their colleagues uh Dan I'll start with you yeah I, so I know I know this is the governance panel, but I just want to pick up on Suresh's point and Mandy's point as well, because I think this is this is so important. Okay. Uh, we, we were talking about this earlier, that um, we just never see um, people at that entry level in uh, our businesses who haven't um, typically got a master's, someone's paid for that, gone to a good university, um, possibly to get to a good university, went to a really good school. They may not have paid for it, but they were sat in a catchment area that allowed them to go to a really good school. And so we, we just don't have people from really tough backgrounds kind of coming, coming through. And, mm. uh, and, and that's, I just feel passionately, we just have to change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so my, what I, I'd leave them. People come up with better, better comments on governance. But what I'd leave with is, let's just—we need to get into the schools and actually find these people, um, and we, who we can bring bring through. And it's not comfortable, um, and it's not easy, and it requires time and money. It's still not going to solve um, a lack of diversity at the at the senior leadership level. It'll take, it'll take a long time to, yeah. to, to do that. Uh, but I think if we can uh, if we can focus on on that. I think that could be really, really powerful. So I appreciate that that's not on government, yeah, no, but as, no, it, as it came it makes up, sense. I think it's really, we've, we've got yeah. the investment twenty twenty in the industry, but yeah, maybe yeah. there need, there needs to be border. But, but even things like Investor twenty twenty, which is brilliant, and we you yeah. know we work with them, a fantastic organisation. But I think sometimes uh, you've got to have someone that provides access to something like that. People have to know it's available. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's yeah. why you have to go even deeper yeah. into in, into schools. Fantastic. So, Rush, what's your one takeaway? Um, 
is a quote I, 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 I read earlier. It's uh, basically the quote says, um, everyone thinks of changing the world. No one thinks of changing themselves. <laughs> and I think the really important thing we need to take away from here is what we can do to change, to make things happen. And, uh, you know, for us, it's, you know, we've always believed, or I always believed, the way you allocate your capital shapes society. And to Dan's mm. point, you know, as an industry, if we want to see that social mobility, we want to see the funds being offered or the, 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 the diversity, we should put mm. our money to it. We should actually just wait for somebody else to do it. Mm. So, you know, if we all have to collaborate to actually divert our own capital, let's face it, we've got a lot of it, we're making some good margins. So let's, let's do that. So mm. think about changing ourselves, not create new products, change our business. Mm. And that will actually change a lot very quickly. Mm. Very interesting. Mandy, obviously, go and have a look for the Act Framework. Yes, my one takeaway. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think that you know, building what what you both have said is that um, there's a couple of things that you can do really easily on your phone. Is for, for one, one of the things about social mobility for me is people who uh, don't need the help don't ask people if they can help them maybe so you you could like one thing you could do is go away and if you see someone that might benefit from help ask them if they want help offer it out because people that come from less privileged back backgrounds don't tend to know to ask for things that they don't have yeah. so that's a very practical thing that you can do and the other thing like we um you know we talked a little bit uh, in the pre-panel bit about unconscious bias and, and the way that we challenge our mm -hmm. bias one of the things that's really you know missing from a lot of conversations is looking for looking for the biases we have looking for our blind spots um and you know when we're, we're not going to change things we're not going to improve things unless we actually try and find out what the blind spots mm -hmm. are bringing you know new voices into the conversation is one way of helping that and that is that is really how we're going to end up changing the world but also look at that framework mm -hmm. yeah. thank you so not to put the pressure on you we're running out of time um very quickly um the, one of the kind of key drivers of governance I guess for your businesses will be uh, your constitutional documents or your articles of association I would say go and have a look at them uh, if they're f solely focused on shareholders um, you, you know pressure your CFOs your CEOs your boards to maybe think about broadening that out uh, B Corp is one way of doing it just changing your articles of association to focus more uh, on, on purpose and people is another um, and part of uh, the um, the series that, that you're doing, Natalie, is all about kind of bringing this to um, the fore and um, and offering mm. ourselves, I guess, as CEOs to work with your CEOs or yourselves to to make it happen. So that takeaway was go to ESG Clarity more. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, thank you all for uh, that. It's, it's interesting you mentioned climate deniers. I mean, I, I had a a question from a colleague actually just before we got on this she wanted to know if there's sort of one argument that you have that's kind of I mean there's there's tons of arguments and you're working on this stuff every day right but is there one that you just find like undeniably persuasive people we call climate deniers are not really ever going to change their minds they're not open to other arguments and the strongest argument i found which is which comes from talking with my colleagues at the British Antarctic Survey is um, understanding how we know how carbon dioxide has changed over the past 
um, almost 100,000 years. So we have a timeline of carbon dioxide going back almost 100,000 years. And that comes from ice that we've taken from Antarctica. So British Antarctic Survey scientists have taken cores of ice from um, a very kind of pristine part of the Antarctic continent where the ice um, has basically been untouched for, for hundreds of thousands of years. So not many people know that Antarctica is a desert. So it's very, very cold, but it's also extremely dry and actually very little snow falls every year. It's only a few millimeters. And so the snowfall that falls every year falls on last year's snow because it hasn't gone anywhere. Um, it hasn't melted. Um, and it, so every year more snow falls and it gets compacts the, the previous year's snow beneath it. And eventually that turns into ice. And actually what happens is if you take um, a big core, you stick a drill into the ice and take a core out of the ice, you can see very clearly lines that um, delineate each year. So you can even count the years more recently. Although as you get further back, it gets, you have to use other kind of techniques to work out. So basically the deeper you go, the older you're going. Um, and you can see layers of volcanic ash from uh, major volcanic eruptions. And you can look at different other ways of dating it. So you can work out exactly which year, which I, piece of ice came from. So then we take it back to our ice core lab here in Cambridge and slice it up and take a look at it. And if you hold up a slice of one of these cores, which looks like a disc, like a kind of large hockey puck, and hold it up to the light, you can see bubbles in it. So those bubbles are air that was trapped when that snow fell. When the, the ice, it's no ice, but before, when it fell, it was snow and it traps air bubbles from the atmosphere. So what you're looking at when you see those bubbles is actually the atmosphere from when that snow fell. So from up to 100,000 years ago, we've got, we've got a sample of the atmosphere that's been preserved in the ice. Wow. So what the ice scientists do, they melt that down very carefully and they collect the air that escapes from those bubbles and they analyze the water. So the um, chemical composition of the water can tell you a bit about the temperature of the atmosphere when that fell. And then they can directly just look at that gas, the atmosphere that they trapped in those bubbles and measure the carbon dioxide. So you've got that directly. You're not making a calculation. You're measuring the carbon dioxide directly. You've got that sample trapped in the ice. So the, the water com chemical composition tells you about the temperature and the gas itself tells you the carbon dioxide. So now you've got two um, pieces of information. You've got the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere and you've got the temperature. And so you've got this, we've got this time series from this one ice core that came from somewhere called Epica Dome C in Antarctica that goes like almost 100,000 years. And that's one continuous record, basically, of temperature and carbon dioxide. And you can see very clearly going up and down together, carbon dioxide goes up, temperature goes up in an interglacial. And then you go into glacial periods and the world cools down and the carbon dioxide drops. And you can see the levels, the range in which the carbon dioxide fluctuates. And then if you plot on the same graph where the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are now, it's way off. I mean, so the planet has never seen carbon dioxide levels that we have now for over the last 100,000 years, even between massive swings between glacials and interglacials. And it's super clear. And you can even, if you hold a piece of these 
ice that a bit of an off cut which I sometimes I'm allowed to do <laughs> you can feel the uh, air bubbles bursting in your hand and it's really powerfully brings home that you've got this kind of thousands of year old air right there um, so I think that's a really powerful technique because it um, it physically linked you can physically see where those measurements are coming from and then you can see you know we've pushed the planet far far away from anything it's been like for hundreds of years hundreds of thousands of years and um and yeah and then again we come back to the greenhouse gas effect which is something it's very simple it's been understood for over 100 years um there's basically no way around adding more carbon dioxide to the atmosphere is going to warm it up there's many many complexities in the climate system that we don't understand as well as we could that's very true but the fundamentals are very very secure and there's basically no way around them we can't get around that physics basically yeah that's hundreds of thousands of year old air in your hand that's uh yeah that is pretty powerful <laughs> yeah it's very cool you can hear it popping as well yeah oh. <laughs> true deniers are are very vocal but they are in the minority and that's yeah. one of those things that's interesting if you look at polls of people i think mo most people um even if they're not climate experts who most people aren't um believe that humans are causing at least some part of climate change but there's an over people overestimate how much they think other people are skeptical because the skeptics are so loud so actually skeptics are very rare most people either don't really think about it very hard or kind of basically trust the scientists um because you know most of us overnight i think the latest polls show that over 100 you know about basically 100 percent of climate scientists agree that humans are causing anthropogenic warming um, so are the main cause of climate change um, so yes it's just basically sad that the minority vocal minority um, cause other people to think that actually that more people are in denial than they actually are mm -hmm. and I think it's very um, fair to have questions I think about how how we know what we we say we're very sure about I mean, as you say, most people aren't climate scientists. So how do we know for sure? It's perfectly legitimate, legitimate to ask those questions. I think most people who ask those kind of questions aren't deniers. They're just, you know, a non-expert. Yeah. Well, this kind of brings me on to the next part then, which is what, what are you most worried about in your work and in yeah, this this area over the next coming years. But then on the flip side, you know, what what kind of keeps you getting up and and going to work on this every day? What's the uh, yeah the outrage and optimism balance as the uh, as the podcast goes? Sure. So the outrage, I guess, comes from that that fact that we we know very clearly why the climate is changing. It's it's very simple. We're putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere it's not more complicated than that and we've known that for a long time um what's worrying is the, that the window to avoid uh, as the intergovernmental panel on climate change puts it catastrophic catastrophic climate change which but we believe will start to occur at about one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels so that window to avoid that is closing rapidly um, so that's what worries me. What gives me hope, though, is that, again, it's very simple. We, we, there are lots of things we don't really understand about the climate system. There's lots of complicated bits about it, but we do know 
why the climate is changing because we're putting carbon dioxide in. So we know exactly how to fix it. We just, the exactly hows and the wherefores and the policy may be very complicated, but at the end of the day, we know exactly how to stop it. Every tiny amount of CO2 we keep out of the atmosphere will reduce global warming. And in fact, the latest report showed from the IPCC that if we reduce emissions, we'll feel the impact within a couple of decades, we'll be able to detect the impact we've had on the atmosphere and on the climate system. So that's a real positive is that uh, there isn't any uncertainty about what to do about it at the, you know, at the most basic, just reduce the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. Find us on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.